look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. and Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Hall of Fame general manager Bill Polian, now an ESPN commentator, and another young general manager, John Robinson of the Tennessee Titans. I asked Polian, why was he so upset that former commissioner Paul Tagliabue didn't make the Pro Football Hall of Fame this year? Ron Wolf and Eddie DeBartolo and myself if you put everything we did for the game together, it wouldn't equal one-tenth of what Paul Tagliabue has done for the game. And I asked John Robinson, the general manager of the Titans, if Marcus Mariota, his star quarterback who broke his leg last December, will be ready for the start of training camp. We've said it before, the most important thing for us is to have Marcus healthy for week one. So we're going to take every precaution necessary to make sure he's healthy push him if he needs to be pushed but he's the type of guy who probably you really don't have to push a whole lot because he's just got that intrinsic motivation to be a good football player and now my conversation with bill polian so back on the mmqb podcast with peter king i'm here with bill polian the hall of fame general manager which those words probably never get old to bill polian we'll ask him about that in a second but now he's in a different world. He's working for ESPN as an NFL analyst. So I thought I would have him on the podcast to talk about a number of things, but mostly just about football and about about his life in football and about the different things he's done that I'm not sure a lot of people really know. But anyway, Bill, thanks a lot for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Peter. Thank you. So, Bill, let's start with sort of current events and just sort of the the thought that you always were a a hardcore 24-7 football guy and you know you always were a football purist and I wonder now that you're sort of on the other side of the line of scrimmage you're in tv how is it working for you, and what do you think of the sort of dichotomy of football versus the media? Well, I think any time you, you get off the field, if you will, and you go into the media, uh, you get a much different perspective um, because you're doing a job that you've never done before. And in so doing, you learn a lot about that job. It's one of the nice things about going into it late in life. It keeps you interested and involved because you're doing new things and learning new things. And the one thing it's given me, and I'm echoing Joe Torre here. I remember Joe Torre saying this after he left uh, the Cardinals, I guess. uh, Well, when he was broadcasting for the Cardinals. 
um, it gives you a completely different perspective on the job that the media has to do. Um, because when you're with a club, you're tunnel visioned, you're focused from week to week, almost day to day. And very often you had a difficult relationship with the media. You oh, yeah. had an adversarial relationship with the media a lot. Yeah. And it, and that comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so um, you learn that, A, they have a job to do. Um, B, it's really important to the business in the long run. And C, uh, I think if I had it to do over again, I would try to impart what I felt was more important in a teaching sense rather than simply a- answer questions that tended to be adversarial or, or, you know, get under your skin. I think there's a completely different way to do it. And I, that even crops up occasionally on television where, in my mind, I'll say, boy, that's not a real sharp thing to say. And then I'll say to myself, no, don't go there. Explain why. And, uh, and, and so... It makes for a better relationship, but I've learned that from my time here, which is actually, this is my sixth year, I think, in the media. So It's amazing. Of the people who are in your job, if you had told me that you were going to be in the media for your second life, that would have shocked me. But here's the reason why maybe on second thought it wouldn't have shocked me. You know, Bill Belichick has this thing that, he has always felt like, okay, so after Cleveland, he knew that he had some learning to do, okay? And when he had to learn about the NFL and the things he didn't do well, and I'm not saying he's a gem with the media because he isn't, but I think he did learn a few things from Cleveland that he took into his next job, one of which is that, you know, It's not a bad idea with your staff and with your tribe, whoever that would be in your new job, in your next job, to explain a little bit more rather than to just say, here's the way we're doing things. And if you've won a couple of Super Bowls, you can do it whatever way you want to do it. But if you haven't, people are going to say, you know, forget this guy. I don't like what he's doing. And what has he ever won? And but where that comes to you is in my opinion if people in football will look at your career they will look and see buffalo and they will look and see carolina and they'll look and see indianapolis and they'll say in my opinion like bill parcells where you went you made teams better and so there was a track record of doing that and that's what I wonder about now, when you look back on your career, you know, see, so you get in the Hall of Fame, but I'm not sure you get in the Hall of Fame because you won a Super Bowl in Indianapolis. I think you get in the Hall of Fame for sort of the lifetime achievement, you know, in making three teams significantly better. Well, thank you. I, I hope that was the case um, because, you know, if if – if winning a Super Bowl is the only thing that counts in your career, there's going to um, be a lot of failures. Be a lot of failures. <laughs> Dean Smith once said that if winning is life and death in basketball, you're going to be dead a long time because <laughs> there are a lot of losses. And so um, I, I, I think 
you know, as, as rough as loss is, whether it's on a regular season Sunday or, or in the Super Bowl, and then the magnitude, of course, is, is greater. Um, I think you, lo- you learn from that, you get better, and you hope that what you do next time is better because of the lessons that you've learned from it. And that's the way I've always approached it. Um, and, you know, I'm honored, obviously, to be in the Hall of Fame. I, frankly, um, when the c- category of contributor was created, many people said to me, you're going to get in. And I almost didn't allow myself to think about it, but the family talked about it, which is another unique thing about the Hall of Fame. But, um, and I said to him, look, they're, they're, I'm, a, I'm at the end of the line. There's a lot of people here, Tagliabue, George Young, Ron Wolf, Bobby Bethard. You know, after those guys get in, then, then maybe I'll be in the conversation. So I was the most shocked person in the world when I got the call from David Baker that I was nominated as one of the two original contributors. But I'll tell you, as somebody who is on the committee, you know, I'll tell you why, in my opinion, your name was advanced ahead of many of those franchise architects. And look, this is not to demean any of them, but the point is that... George Young did it once with one franchise, and he had a very powerful and very strong head coach, you know, in Bill Parcells. And Bobby Beathard did it once with one head coach, and he had a very strong and very powerful head coach. You, and I'm not in any way, I'm not saying that Marv Levy was a triple-A ball player or that, or that Tony Dungy wasn't great or any, don't, don't get me wrong. The only thing I'm saying is that you did it in three places, and you did it where it was sort of tabula rasa. It was a clean slate, and you built things. In my opinion, and again, this is nothing against any of those other guys, but one of the reasons why I think you are deserving, and you know you were deserving along with Ron Wolf, is that you know you did it more than once. And you did it in, while not quite a vacuum, you invented it. And those are the things that, in my opinion, and I will never forget, and this is one of the, the one question I really was curious in asking you about your football career, is about the first draft in the history of the Carolina Panthers. And I was there. I was covering it for Sports Illustrated. And I remember... We were at Winthrop College in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Of all the places to found and to birth a (laughs) franchise, this is a weird one in the gym of Winthrop College. Under the stand. Yeah, yeah. And so, but, but what I never will forget about that, there's two things. You had the first pick in the draft, and you wanted Kerry Collins, the quarterback, And you realize that nobody else wanted Kerry Collins that high. But you did. And you knew you were going to draft him. But you also knew that maybe I can get some value. And so you traded down from one to five to the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals moved up and took Kajana Carter number one. Okay? And then you took Kerry Collins number five. And then you traded back and everybody said, geez, he didn't get very much. He only got a second round pick. And I believe it was Sean King, right? No, Tyrone Poole. Tyrone Poole. Sorry about that. You got Tyrone Poole. 
good player, not a memorable player, but a good lasting contributor player. But the reason I bring this up is that it's stuck in me for two reasons. Number one, that you had a belief in Kerry Collins, number one. And number two, you knew that going from one to five was worth more than whatever it was, the 39th pick, whatever it was. But you also knew if I pick him number one, I'm going to pay him a lot more than I'm going to pay him at number five. And I know I'm going to get him at number five. So why not just take him at number five and get another guy who's probably going to be a starting player for us? Remember back to that moment, to that day, to that decision, and tell me what you were thinking. Well, our decision, we first of all, um, this is there's a lot of funny parts to the startup of, of the Panthers, and one of the funniest ones was that this was not a pro football area. People didn't understand pro football; they understood college football, and and very few understood the mechanics of pro football, especially the draft. They followed players from Carolina who would get drafted, but they didn't understand how the draft worked. So there was going to be the expansion draft in February, followed by the regular draft in April. And there was going to be a coin flip as to who would draft first. And the winner of the coin flip would draft first in the expansion draft and second in the uh, collegiate draft. So before we left, the media asked me, which do you prefer? And I said, oh, absolutely. I, 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 I want to lose the toss because I want to draft first in the regular draft. And, and one of the writers wrote this big column about Polian's lost his mind. He, look at all these good players we can get with the first pick in the expansion draft. And, and, and so I explained. I forget now. I forget <clears throat> now. Who was in that expansion draft? Well, Steve Berline, I think, was the, was the, was the first pick of the, uh, <laughs> of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm not laughing at Steve Berline, but I'm just saying that. I that, think Steve yeah. was because we eventually picked him up on waivers. And I can't remember who our first pick was right off the top of my head. Um, my memory's bad these days, but it'll, it'll come to me before we finish. In any event, I explained that the first pick in the regular draft was far more valuable than the first pick in the expansion draft because there's only two teams drafting. In the, in the regular draft, there's 32 teams drafting, and so the pick is far more valuable on its face. So when we got to April, it was really between Steve McNair and Kerry Collins. And, and it was as close to a dead heat as I've ever seen. Wow. And, um, and, and Steve... What were, the, what, what, were, what were you thinking about each guy? Um, Kerry had led the Nittany Lions to uh, what should have been a national championship season. They had a bad game against Indiana, which they pulled out in the fourth quarter late in the season and the writers dumped them to number two and they never got back up to number one. I can't even remember who the national champion was, but they were undefeated. He had a great Rose Bowl and he more than Kajana Carter was the driving force behind that team. Uh, Bobby Ingram was one of the receivers. Kyle Brady was the tight end. I'm sure there are many more that, that played on the team, but Kerry had the longest career and he was clearly the driving force. And, uh, and he had everything he wanted, size, strength, arm strength, you know, athletic ability, intelligence, et cetera. Now, Steve was an absolutely arresting talent. I've never seen a guy throw the ball better than Steve McNair. Wow. He was outstanding. And he was outstanding in every other way. 
and he was Johnny Manziel long before Johnny Manziel was ever thought of. And and he was more scintillating than Johnny Manziel because he could do more things. He could throw the ball deep too. He, absolutely. And yeah. on a on a on a string, he could hit it at sixty yards at a string. So it was we knew we're taking either because we had the first pick, we're taking either Steve McNair or Kerry Collins. And lo and behold, we get through all the psychological testing, and we found out legitimately that Steve had a little bit of a, a learning disability, which while not um, uh, debilitating and not disqualifying in any way, would put him in a position where he was going to be slower to develop. Once he got it, he was going to get it, and it was going to be good for a long time. But we were in a situation where um, we had to sell PSLs, and we tried to, we were going to try to come out of the box really good. And we stocked up on veterans, and we signed a lot of free agents um, trying to create uh, Pittsburgh's defense. Dom Capers was our head coach, and, and we did. And we thought, okay, Kerry's ready to play sooner. They both have long careers. I was a little concerned because Steve ran so much that he would get hurt, which turned out to be the case, but not debilitatingly so. And it did take Steve a while in, in, in Tennessee, but, of course, when he got it, he was tremendous. And we remained friends until his, his unfortunate passing. But anyway, we get to draft day or close to draft day, and it's pretty clear that they're going to go one, two, and we said, if we go to five, we're going to get one of them. And whichever one we get, we'll be happy with. Did you know that Jacksonville was taking Tony Baselli? Yeah, we kind of, we had a feeling okay. about that. And Did you, were you tempted by Tony Baselli? No. Why? I was not going to take an offensive lineman when there was a quarterback available. Okay. That's just my philosophy. Right. Tom disagrees, that, you know. Yeah. That's Parcells philosophy that yeah. you know people disagree that's yeah. so he took Jake Long instead of Matt Ryan that's exactly right yeah. yeah and so that's just the way you look at things and so um we knew we'd get we felt really good about getting one of the two quarterbacks did you know that 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 Jeff Fisher was going to take uh, by the now? time we got to draft day we did yes did. okay yeah. by All the time right. it came to make the trade we did yeah. and so we knew then we, if we went down to five, we we're going to get Kerry, and wonderful. So we made the trade. In the trade, um, we agreed with Mike Brown in Cincinnati that we would not take a running back and he would not take a quarterback. That was part of the trade papers. The trade yeah. would void if either wow. either team did that. It shows you what the old NFL was like, in the sense that you could make a deal with someone and give you a word and put it on paper and no one would ever think that anybody would ever violate it. I don't know if that could happen again today. Yeah. But anyway, that's a, a an So, aside. Bill, tell me at that time what I will never forget about, not necessarily that weekend, but maybe a week or so later, that Kerry Collins calls Dom Capers and he's like kind of freaked out with all the pressure on him with being this face of the franchise and everything. And he couldn't come in that day. And whether it was the start of rookie minicamp, I forget what it was, but did you have an indication right away that you might have some, some problems with Kerry Collins? No, no. Um, the, the, he, he adapted fine. 
we, you know, everybody has trepidation. Yeah. And we understood what his family situation was and all of that. There was, there was no issue there at all. What happened was um, he broke his jaw in 16 places. Romanowski lit him up in a preseason game. To this day, the most vicious and unnecessary shot I've ever seen. And we rushed him back because the previous year we'd been to the championship game with him. And now everybody's thinking Super Bowl. Yeah. And we rushed him back. And he was not ready to play psychologically. He wasn't ready. Oh, so this wasn't his right away in his rookie year oh, when he said no, that. No, okay. no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. And at that point, I, don't, I didn't do enough to support him. I, yeah. I regret that. It's my biggest regret in football. Wow. I didn't do enough to say. What do you mean? So what happened? I should have said, Kerry, look, you're coming out of the lineup. You're going to sit down, relax. Let's get you healthy. You tell me when you're ready to go. And, 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 and nothing else counts. Yeah. And, and, and at that point in time, he needed a little counseling. He, needed, he, he was living by himself. He hadn't quite adapted uh, too well into town. Probably was drinking more beer than he should have. Uh, typical injured player syndrome. Yeah. I didn't recognize it quickly enough, and uh, that's my fault. With Bill Polian on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I could ask you one more history question, and then we're going to get to current events. So the one other history question I've always wondered about, and I was prompted by seeing Ryan Leaf recently. Ryan Leaf comes to the NFL scouting combine, and mentors slash advises young quarterbacks basically don't do what I did okay so Bill 1998 draft it's Peyton Manning Ryan Leaf everyone who's listening to this podcast is going to be thinking unless they're 45 years old or older they're all going to be thinking what do you mean there was no there was no contest there Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf How, how could you even think of that but they don't remember that, you know, that Ryan Leaf was an absolute total stud throwing the ball deep downfield and playing great for Washington State and having a great bowl game and having everybody, I'll never forget, ESPN, the magazine, one of their early editions, they basically said, hey, whoever takes Manning over Leaf is a fool. Leaf is going to be the big guy. Take me back into that era and tell me, what that was like for you to make the decision. You have the first pick in the draft. You're the general manager of the Indianapolis Colts, and you are going to take your quarterback of the future, Peyton Manning or Ryan Leaf. What are you thinking? What happened? Well, I got here uh, early in January. Um, I'd scouted both guys perfunctorily. Uh, you know, obviously being in Carolina, we weren't going to get a shot at them. So, but I did the work as I always did, and um, we got here, and I I queried the scouting staff, and it was fifty fifty split right down the middle. So I said, well, okay, we're going to go back and look at all the film, and uh, and we're start from scratch, ground zero. So that's what we did. Looked at all the film. I looked at it every pass that Peyton threw in his collegiate career. I think four times, um, and and the same with Leaf. He didn't have as big a body of work because he was coming out early. Um, I asked Bill Walsh to take a look at it and give me a fresh set of eyes, which he, uh, which he very generously did. Um, 
we had Bruce Aarons and Tom Moore here heading the offense. So they had done the same. And we had, uh, you know, the senior people on our scouting staff do it. So um, we get to March. And as much as I told everybody block out the noise, you couldn't because it was, <laughs> my Lord, it was, it, it was like the Russians and Trump, it seemed like. I mean, <laughs> that's all anybody ever talked about. <laughs> Ryan Lee for Peyton Manning. And, um, and so the things we had heard were with Peyton was, number one, he's a poor athlete. Number two, he has a weak arm. Number three, he's a product of the system. To this day, I don't, I don't know what that meant. Um, but we went down to work them both out. And, um, and we found out that Peyton is a much better athlete than you think. He, he just looks awkward, but he's not. Secondly, um, he throws a terrifically tight ball, He's really a, a, a good spiral. Every once in a while, he'd throw a duck, and I found out after we got him here, it was only because he gripped the ball a little bit too tight on certain occasions. But he had a terrific arm, a very strong arm. Two days later, we go work Ryan Leaf out. Number one, he's out of shape. Number two, um, he was. I remember standing next to Tom Moore and saying, holy mackerel, Peyton's arm is much stronger. And um, so all, all these misnomers about Leaf existed out there in the ether. And then uh, I have to take you back to the combine. Leaf blew us off. He missed he missed our his appointment with us. And uh, Lee Steinberg said that I had given him the wrong time. That's not true. And Lee has since I guess last year or sometime came clean on it. <laughs> I'm glad he did after all these years. <laughs> and uh, and so we hadn't interviewed him. Peyton came in. He's got his yellow legal pad sits down. Remember, you only have 15 minutes to interview. We get through the pleasantries. And he says, I have a few questions, if you don't mind. So he begins to ask us a ton of questions about the offense, about the city, how we view things, how we view his role in the organization, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, the horn blows. Boop. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, it's over. He gets up. He says, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It's great meeting you. <laughs> Walks out. And I turn to Dominique, our, 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 our personnel director, and Jim Moore, and I said, he just interviewed us. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know <laughs> that that's what we could expect for the next 14 years. But anyway, we get to uh, through the workouts, and now we're interviewing Ryan, and Jim Moore says to him, you know, we have – minicamp uh, opening on such and such a day, and that's the first day you're allowed to report. And I'm sure I just want to let you know because if we take you, you know, we're looking forward to having you there. And he said, well, I can't make it. And the room went silent. And his coach was in the room as well, too, and he was kind of clearing his throat like I never heard this one before. And Ryan says, well, now we have this trip planned to Las Vegas. My buddy and I, we've, we've had it planned for about a year, and so I'll be about four days late. We got So Jim didn't say anything. <laughs> this was in your interview with him? Yes. Where were you, in Pullman? Yes. Wow. Yes. So You leave the room, and what does Jim say to you? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have to. He didn't have to. <laughs> so, um, you know, there wasn't much to discuss other than, the fact that we didn't think he was in great shape. And, uh, and of course, we'd done our, our due diligence in a lot of different ways. And it was pretty clear, not pretty clear, it was crystal clear, 
that Ryan was not mature enough to handle the load that was going to be placed on his shoulders. That you know was what was really obvious. interesting about that whole thing, Bill? I will never forget. I did a story for Sports Illustrated at that time where I took 30 plays of each guy in their last year, Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, and I went around to six quarterback experts, I thought. Phil Simms, Bill Walsh, Sid Gilman, who was unbelievably good and just had great clarity about each guy, um, you know. And, and so all these guys, and what I will never forget is at the end of each conversation after watching this tape with each guy, I said, so you got the first pick in the draft. Who are you taking? Six-nothing Manning. Six-nothing. Not close. Six-nothing Manning. But then Bill Walsh said something very interesting. He said, I'd trade down. And I'd probably take Andre Wadsworth. And then down the line, I'd take Brian Greasy. And I will never forget that because to this day, and again, who knows, in the right offense, Brian Greasy might have been because, hey, Tom Brady was the 199th pick. You never know. You don't know depending on where you are. But I will never forget that because I always think of this to this day that Bill Walsh would have passed on Peyton Manning. So there's more ways to skin a cat. And, you know, as crazy as it sounds, maybe Bill Walsh was right. If he had Brian Greasy, maybe Brian Greasy would have been Joe Montana. You just don't know. But what I find so interesting about that is six to nothing, Peyton Manning over Ryan Leaf. And yet we got to the week of the draft that year, and it was a frigging coin flip. You know, of who you should take. Do you remember? Well, I do. I, there's a funny story about it. Uh, we had made up our mind by then, right around April 1st. It, it was finished and done. But Mr. Ursay wanted it kept quiet because he was going to be part of the ceremony in New York. And I'm not sure Jim and I had shared that with him quite at that point. But anyway, Peyton came in to, to have some... I dotted or T's crossed that had to do with his physical. And he stopped by my office on the way out. Was this the famous Peyton yeah. Manning? <laughs> yeah. Tell him what Peyton said. Yeah. And so he said, you know, have you made up your mind? And I said, no, not yet. It'll be later in the week. This is maybe a week before the draft. And he, and he got annoyed. He said, you know, damn, I, I, I got to go to New York. I got to know something. I, I, this is killing me. <laughs> Why can't you make up your mind? And I said, well, um, you'll find out if we, you come here. I'm a little bit of a procrastinator anyway. And, but I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. It, it, it's obvious that it's important to you, and I understand your situation. If you give me a word that you won't tell anybody, the draft was on Saturday. I said, I'll call you Thursday, and you'll let you know what our decision is. So he said, okay, that's fair enough. And I, I could tell he wasn't thrilled, but it was all right. So he gets up to leave, shakes hands, walks out. Where he's kind of in the hallway of my office, and he turns around and says, I just want to leave you with this thought. If you pick me, I promise we'll win a championship. If you don't, I promise I'll come back and kick your ass. <laughs> so I said, that's fair enough. I hope you mean the team and not me. <laughs> oh, man. I, I love stories like that. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. I want to ask my listeners a quick question. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these four letters, MMQB. That's easy enough, right? Keep listening, 
and I'll tell you how to get those free meals. Hey, we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal, and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I know, my daughter is a Blue Apron user, and she's really eating well. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients, all right to your door. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Now comes that part about the three free meals. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com MMQB. Three meals free just by adding in MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Finishing up with Bill Poley, and I got two other things that I really have always wanted to ask you. We've gone way past our time, but I have to ask you this. So you have been a guy who... You did a great job in Buffalo. You did a great job in Carolina. And in both places, you were dismissed and then moved on and went to another place. So what is it like building a really, really good team and having the owner come to you and say, we're moving on. We're going in a different direction. What is that like? Because I think a lot of people listening to this will think Hall of Fame general manager has always run his own show, has always dictated this, that, and the other thing. But you didn't. You got whacked a couple of times, and it couldn't have been pleasant. Oh, it's not pleasant at all. But I think if you um, – I've kind of always viewed it as a test. You know, you, you – Life is not always pleasant. Life, President Kennedy said in the context of the loss of a, of a soldier, uh, you know, life is not fair. Some people uh, seem to get all the breaks and other people do the right thing and, and, and don't get rewarded. It's what life is about. So you need to get off the deck, figure out what you did wrong. Um, in some cases, there, there's nothing you can do about it. Some cases you can, you can improve and do better and uh, get off the deck and, 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 and get on to the next chapter and accept that it's, that it's been done. There's, a, there's no point in, in wallowing in pity or self-pity. There's no point in worrying about what may come next. You can only, you can only do what you can do. And there's certainly and absolutely no reason to say poor me because there's a lot of people in this world the vast majority the overwhelming majority in this pe- of people in this world don't have it nearly as good as we do so uh, just consider yourself lucky for what you've got and get off the deck and 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 go do your best somewhere else that's the way i've looked at it finishing with bill polian so bill the last thing i would ask you is um in 2016, you were 
one of the uh, three advisors to the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Contributors Committee discussion, where I was one of the people in the room, uh, one of the members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame voting committee. And there were five of us in the room, and we had to make decisions on the two people who were contributors who we were going to nominate. And you were quite eloquent, both... You were eloquent for several people. Uh, but I remember you were eloquent for Paul Tagliabue. You were elo- eloquent for Jerry Jones. So Jerry Jones ends up getting in the Hall of Fame. Paul Tagliabue doesn't. And I saw you the night of the Hall of Fame voting, uh, right the night before the Super Bowl in February. And you were outraged by it and you still remain angry to this day about Paul Tagliabue's exclusion from the Pro Football Hall of Fame so and I realize we don't have 20 minutes but in a Cliff's Notes version why does Paul Tagliabue belong in the Hall of Fame in your opinion well, by the way, I'm 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 over the outrage. I'm I'm on to <laughs> I'm on to a second level now. But what uh, is the second level? Well, the second level is 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 let's make sure that the process works better than it did this time around. Yeah. Uh, and I'm working on that. I don't have any answers yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, but but here's the reason Paul Tagliabue belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm quoting Sal Palantonio, who was his presenter in the room. Uh, Ron Wolf and, and Eddie DeBartolo and myself, if you put everything we did for the game together, it wouldn't equal one-tenth of what Paul Tagliabue has done for the game. The reason we sit here today with a $176 million salary cap, which has made everyone in the National Football League rich, including those of us in the media, people tangential to the game, uh, is because he and Gene Upshaw were able to take a situation that was going to end the game as we knew it. Free agency, franchise demise, uh, perhaps uh, uh, an irrevocable uh, diminution of play in the game, a competitive balance in the game. They together crafted a system that is the envy of every other sport. On top of that, because Paul Tagliabue is such a giant in the field of of human relations, not just football. He made athletics better with the Rooney Rule. We now have more minority head coaches in the National Football League than we've ever had. We have more at the college level than we ever had, although they need to do better. And we're, we're, we're We've got more minority general managers than we've ever had because of Paul Tagliabue. That alone should qualify him. But add this. At a time when the country and the world is talking about doping in the Olympics, and we have our greatest swimmer testifying before Congress that he had to swim against people who were taking performance-enhancing drugs, Paul Tagliabue, on his own, without the help of Gene Upshaw, in 1991, when we did not have a collective bargaining agreement, put in a steroid system, a steroid abuse system, that is the envy of everything else in the world. 
We've never had a problem with steroids from that day to this. And to show you what kind of a relationship he had with Gene, as soon as we got a collective bargaining agreement, the first thing Gene did was sign on to that. So he did 10 things more that I could talk about. But in terms of the game that we know today and the world of sport that we know today, Paul Tagliabue is the most consequential man in my lifetime in the history of any sport, not just football. Now, right. if that doesn't qualify him for the Hall of Fame, I don't know what does. So you know that, obviously, the the speed bump in his road to the Hall of Fame has been the perceived reticence and also his statements early on about head trauma and concussions that it was media-driven. So... What was your experience with Tagliabue when you were in the game about what he did or what he didn't do about head trauma? Well, first of all, my experience is extensive. As I said to you in the meeting, I was an eyewitness. Because I represented the, the Colts as the club president, I was in every owner's meeting. I was a member of the competition committee for 19 years. I attended every competition committee meeting. We were briefed by physicians time and time and time again on what we knew about head trauma, what could be done about it, what we thought might be done about it. And as recently as two days ago, I sat with Dr. Stan Herring from the Seattle Seahawks, and we talked about it for the better part of a day. Uh, he had just been to the concussion symposium in Berlin about a month and a half ago. So I know a lot more about it than most people do. And I think I maybe know more about it than maybe most in the media. But more importantly, I was an eyewitness. In 1991, we began, Paul Taglieu, on his own, without a collective bargaining agreement, began to push for increased safety standards. When I went to work for him in 1993 as the first dean of discipline, Mandated by the collective bargaining agreement, we, without a collective bargaining agreement, pushed for tougher standards. And we suspended five, six players because of head uh, shots. In 1995, we instituted the most far-reaching uh, rules in terms of changing the game, in terms of head shots and use of head, the use of the helmet. Never before done. At the time reviled for it, reviled for it. And he did it without even a vote. Legislatively, he, he, he simply tweaked the rule. And, and the owners didn't even vote on it. The coaches were outraged. We couldn't coach the game. We're making this game a sissy game. Now, he did say, and he said to you guys, uh, uh, you know, through Sal, if he had to do over again the statement about um, pack journalism, he would take it back. But he doesn't need to take anything back. Did what I just described to you, which is only one-tenth of what he did, actually, does that sound to you like a man that didn't care about players, that didn't care about concussions, that didn't care about head trauma, that didn't care about making the game safer? And it's on the record. It's all there for anybody to see. And so if you, if you approach it with any degree of rationality, and if you think of yourself as a juror studying a case and this kind of evidence is presented to you, 
the leading the the the, the leading exponent of competitive balance, collective bargaining, 17 years of labor peace, unheard of in any sport. Advancement of minorities, unheard of in any other sport, including Jackie Robinson. Um, and now it, it, it cleaning up steroids long before anybody at the Olympic level ever thought about it. We're arguing about still to this day whether the Russians ought to be allowed to compete. That's never happened in football and never will as long as this policy is in place. And then finally, a guy who did more than anybody to advance safety, both from the standpoint of sanctions for players who violated the rules and for rules that were as far reaching as any in the game. The colleges adapted them. And let me just end with this. Again, an eyewitness. 9-11 takes place. There's discussion about whether or not we should play. The colleges said we're playing. Major League Baseball said, well, we don't quite know what to do. We're debating it. Paul Tagliabue had a conference call with the owners and with the player representatives. Many of the player representatives, particularly those in the middle of the country where 9-11 wasn't the immediate um, uh, attack and an immediate violent shock to the system that it was on the East Coast, said, well, you know, maybe we ought to play. Paul Tagliabue said, let me tell you two things. Again, I was there. Excuse me. Pete Rosell told me that the biggest mistake he ever made was letting our games go forward on the the weekend that Jack Kennedy died. And because we didn't show the proper respect for what the country was going through. And he said, beyond that, I can look out my office window and see Giant Stadium, and it's being used for a morgue for the people who were killed in 9-11. I can't in good conscience go forward and play. There wasn't a soul on the call who then was going to argue to play. It was over. And he did it on his own as an American, not as a commissioner of any sport, but as an American. Now, if that doesn't qualify him, I don't know what will. You'll, You'll never... You'll never convince me that that there's any argument against it. Bill Polian, I really appreciate you joining me for far longer than I asked. And uh, you did an eloquent job presenting Tagliabue. Perhaps you'll be in the room next time. But anyway, um, really appreciate you joining me. And best of luck in your new world in television. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's the MMQB Podcast. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. 
And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Back at the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm here with John Robinson, the general manager of the Tennessee Titans. We're at the scouting combine in Indianapolis. It might be a little while before you actually hear this compared to when we taped it. But, John, my whole theory about the scouting combine is that not a lot changes between now and the time of the draft. So I don't think anything you say here is going to be overtaken by tremendous headlines in Nashville (laughs) or otherwise. Yeah, you, you know the only the only the, the biggest thing that that we get out of this is the medical information. You know, our doctors can examine the players. Um, you know, sometimes they find things on the kids that they didn't they didn't even know they had. So, you know, there may be some medical you know, some guys that are medically disqualified uh, for our football team based on prior injuries. That decision really for 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 people way smarter than me with you know the doctor's degrees or whatever. So. But it's a chance for us to get to know the players um, in the nightly interviews. It's a chance to watch those guys move around athletically. You know, it's a really important piece in the team building process. Um, but to your point, it's it's really it's not the end all be all, except really for the medical stuff. John, I think you've got an interesting little uh, trail here. You know, to get to this point of your career, and I just want to start off and have. You sort of tell people, you, you had a, a few years with the New England Patriots, and you learned a lot. We talked about this a year ago. You learned an awful lot, and it, not just necessarily from Bill Belichick himself, but sort of from the way that the Patriots do things. Can you just discuss for a minute how you feel that your time in New England impacted you and how it sort of got you ready for this job today? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's deeply rooted at, at my foundation as a as a personnel guy. Uh, they threw me to into the southeast uh, immediately. I re- I didn't know what I was doing. They just kind of, they let me. I think they wanted to see if I what what I would bring to the table. Um, and I think that's an interesting way of uh, of training people. Um, it wasn't just you. There were other people there that they just throw into these jobs, see if they can handle them. Well, yeah, the scouting assistant thing. I mean, you have a, you'd have a little bit of background in football. I obviously was a coach. I had connections with coaches in the southeast. Which, as an area scout, the most important thing is having connections with coaches and and resources at at other colleges, so that you can get information about the prospects. You know, at that time, Coach Belichick, Scott Pioli, and, and you know, the, the more seasoned scouts, they're the ones that were going to actually look at the players and evaluate them. They weren't going to base a, make, you know, base a draft choice on what I told them about a guy. But I learned. Uh, they helped me. They corrected me. I went in and sat down with Coach Belichick one time, and we talked about defensive line play, um, what he's looking for out of defensive linemen, things that I should be keen. Uh, it was just me. It was, it was really – I mean, I was a – 24, 25-year-old scout who was former coach and, you know, had looked up to him as a coach for, you know, for a while. And to sit down there one-on-one and talk about defensive line play, it was, it was pretty cool. And, and I took the approach, I, whatever, whatever role I can help the football team acquire players to help us win, that's what was the most important thing. You know, I, I learned that, that time management was very important. 
being self-sufficient, leadership styles with you know Scott Pioli, Thomas Dimitrov, Jason Light. You know, I think we we all took something from there, from the way that the organization uh, was ran. Uh, everybody was held to the same standard, from the defensive coordinator to the to the you know the lowly scouting assistant in the back. There was a standard uh, relative to what your role was on the team that you were going to work as hard as you could and, and do everything that you could to put the team in the best uh, position to win football games. You know, and that's you know philosophically that's the same thing we're trying to do in 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 Tennessee is put our own spin on it, our own style on it. Nobody's going to be the Patriots. They're their own entity there uh, in Foxborough. But I think for me personally, there's a lot of things that I took and learned from from my time with that organization about how to scout, strategizing in the draft, being decisive, yet being disciplined with your decisions, um, and trying to put the team in the best position to win football games. You worked there, I think, for 12 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 12 years. So you were there sort of in the guts of 2002 to 2013. You are there sort of in the guts of when they really got good. But by the time you got there, a lot was already established. You know, I think about the Patriots a lot of times, and I think about a team that if you don't have a quarterback in this league, you're just not winning, period. So they've got the quarterback, they've got the coach, and it always has struck me that once you have those two elements and can sort of build around them, those are the two things you desperately, desperately need. So what did you learn from being around them about those two elements? I mean, do you agree that those are the two most important elements in building a, a winning team? Yeah, I think I think those are, are very, if not the most uh, they're the most important elements, I would agree. you got to have in a coach uh, a man who's, who can lead a team, who can stand in front of a room and, and convey the style of football you're going to play. Certainly a high football acumen, be able to work in, you know, in all three phases. You know, and the quarterback's got to be a tireless worker. You know, he's got to be an accurate passer, a smart decision maker, an accurate passer. You know, and I, th- I think that, you know, in my time there, I, I was able to see – those two guys uh, do it at a really high level, you know, do it at a really high level. And that's kind of the standard, if you will. And um, will somebody ever reach that standard, you know, as football continues to go on? I I don't know. But I think for me, uh, that was a benchmark that, you know, that everybody will be, you know, graded or judged against moving forward, I guess. Here with John Robinson, the general manager of the Tennessee Titans. John, I have this sort of theory about your team, and how when you arrived, they had drafted Marcus Mariota. You you sort of, you know, that was the quarterback there. And so you basically had to then determine, is he your guy? And now we have to build around him. How long did it take you to realize, because I've read some of the things you've said about Mariota, that, you know, you very much a fan of him in a lot of ways. How long did it take you to realize, okay, we got our quarterback, let's just build this thing around him? Um, you know, rel- relatively quickly, I had the, since that I was with Tampa the the, the year before um, when we had the number one pick, we spent a lot of time with both of those quarterbacks at the top of the draft. So I had a good familiar- familiarity with him and, and what he would bring to a team. I had studied a lot of uh, film on him. 
I knew what his skill set was going to be. And it was, you know, I, I thought based on all the information that we had in the prior year's draft, uh, when I got to, when I got to Tennessee, that uh, a lot of the things that, you know, the, the people at Oregon said about him, uh, they manifested themselves uh, visually for me very quickly. He's uh, he's the leader of our football team. He's a tough guy. Football is very important to him. You know, he, he got better last year as the season went on. He learned to throw um, throw the ball away. He, he doesn't have to try to squeeze everything into a window or try to get the ball. Um, sometimes the best throws are the ones you don't make. He learned to, to get down and slide and try to protect himself instead of trying to get an extra yard, um, you know, in, in hopes of staying healthy. So, you know, I think he, he really, uh, he's an important piece to what we're trying to do and the fact that, uh, that he was there when I got there. I was, you know, I was very fortunate, very blessed to, to have him on the team already. Are you the kind of person who asks yourself, you're in Tennessee and you're doing the scouting before the draft in 2015? Did you ever say to yourself, man, if this is my decision, here's who I would pick? And were you on the fence, if so, with Winston Mariota? Or were you a dyed-in-the-wool Winston guy when they picked Winston? You know, I think I think we all in in Tampa we went back and we went back and forth on that. It was we we really didn't think we could go wrong either way with, with either guy. My role in Tampa was to try to help the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get the right guy for that program, uh, for that football team. That's who I was employed by. So. Uh, you know, we had a lot of meetings. We had a lot of back and forth on on those players, you know. And in the end, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we thought that that Jameis was was the better fit. We thought that I don't know that it really was a one-two. It was really more of a you know one A and a one AA that both of them are going to be really good. Was and it then, at all part of your decision when you did go to Tennessee that you said, "I think we got a quarterback we can win with." For the Titans, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that was one of the that was one of the things that that when I met with, you know, Amy Adams Strunk and talked about you know the opportunity of of, of getting the job, um, that I told her I was like, we have a quarterback here. Now, just looking at the film and evaluating the players, he got hit too much last year. Hard for the quarterback to play the position when he's laying on his back. So, uh, one of the things that we talked about early on was fortifying the offensive line. And getting that established, and that's what we set out to do. You know, once we got started in the team building process. So, John, I think one of the things that the Titans have done and done well in the last three or four years, you've gotten your two tackles. You know, so even though, as you say, Mariota got hit too much last year and ended up knocking him out uh, in Week 16, I believe, you've got. Two guys at left tackle, you know, Taylor Lewan and then right tackle Jack Conklin. You've got your two guys long-term who you feel are your cornerstone guys at that position. Was that done by design? Let's get these two guys, even though Lewan is there before you get there. Was that done by design to get the tackles in place as long as then you've got your quarterback? Yeah, you know, again, I, I think when when I sat down and, and interviewed for the job, you know, one of the things looking at the the 15 season there was I, I don't know exactly how many times Marcus was sacked or hit, but it was a lot. So we set out with, hey, we've got to protect him better. We've got to get the line 
you know, fixed. We've got to try to establish a running game so that we can, you know, that will open up the passing game, our ability to run the football. So, you know, that's kind of the mission that we set out on was to, to get the line fixed. You know, we, we positioned ourselves last year from a draft standpoint with Jack. We signed Ben Jones in free agency. Um, those guys really gelled together. I've said it before. It's really not about one or two players. It's really about all five of those guys playing well together. I think that both of those guys have a really good skill set. They can protect the edges of the pocket. Uh, they're both good run blockers. So they really fit identity-wise what, what we want to be. But that's a long answer to your question. Sorry, but I, I think that that's one of the things we set out to do was to in 2016, not have Marcus hit so much, and and we did that. Uh, you know, the one injury there late at the end, it was kind of a you know fluke deal. A guy fell on the back of him, but you know, I, I would say his his sack rate or hit rate last year went down drastically compared to 2015. Is there any question in your mind that broken right fibula is that right with with Mariota? Yes. Any question in your mind that he comes back in fine condition for 2017? No, I mean he's he's working really hard. Um, you know he'll be back in he'll be back in the facility here in a month or so. Uh, we can start going through um, seeing where he's at. He's out in Oregon now uh, rehabbing. And they have an ungodly amount of of rehab equipment out there in that facility. It's it's an awesome place. Um, at the University of Oregon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really cool. So we're anxious to get him back. You know, when we start the OTAs, uh, we've said it before, the most important thing for us is to have Marcus uh, healthy for week one uh, of the season. So we're going to take every precaution necessary to make sure he's healthy, push him if he needs to be pushed. But uh, he's the type of guy who probably you really don't have to push a whole lot because he's just got that intrinsic motivation to be a good football player. So, John, last year you were in position – before the draft right about this time a year ago you're sitting there with the first pick in the draft and you sort of hold all the cards you ended up making a trade I wanted to to ask you what goes into your thought process when I'm sure you hope it's the only time in your career you have the first overall pick yes most certainly but it is a powerful position to have so for people listening who say, wow, what's it like to have the first pick in the draft and then what's it like to trade it? Talk about that a little bit and how much it sort of occupies your thoughts and what the process was in determining you were going to trade and then how exactly do you make that trade? Yeah, there were a lot of restless nights when we when we owned the pick. Um you know, because you, you're you're at the top of the mountain. You're looking down at every single prospect, and and you get to pick who whoever you want. There's no player that's not available uh, to you. And then trying to put yourself in position from a trade standpoint, uh, reaching out to potential suitors for the pick, being patient, and 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 waiting on the right deal, and and then really good dialogue back and forth which ended up happening with la uh, the la rams there about trying to do what's best for for both teams trying to come up with a deal that makes most sense for both teams it, it was a relief to, to get out of of the first overall pick because 
at that point we were only going to get one player in in our roster we needed more than one guy to to start you know our way on the process to to being a relevant team in the league so to get out of that and acquire the picks that we did uh, it, it gave us some some ammunition uh, to start to add those players and we had to strategize and once we got down I knew I wanted to try to get back up to get Jack uh, so Jack Conklin Conklin yeah yep. so then then there's a whole another process that starts so you're out of one and you've got all these picks so then you're trying to strategize to uh, how am I going to get back up so the I wouldn't say after the trade was was done. We, you know, I went to bed at seven o'clock and just slept easy. You're still constantly thinking about different scenarios. Or what if I did this? Or what if I did th- what if I did that? So, it, it, it's fun though. I mean, I, I I love the draft. I love it's such a strategic uh, component to to team building. Um, much like the coaches are are strategizing on throughout the course of the week on the weekly opponent. Our opponent on, on the personnel side, which the coaches are heavily involved in, is trying to strategize and get yourself in position to maximize those players to add them to your team. See, I wonder, like, when you're sitting there, did you ever have a second suitor for that pick that you ever got serious with other than the Rams? No, I think the Rams were the one that, you know, we really – when we had those initial discussions here in, in Indy, I think that I saw that uh, there was some some real interest from them. It wasn't just a yeah, we might consider it. It was hey, uh, we 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 would like to come up. You know, I know it's a long way for for us to go back, but we would like to come up. So keep that in mind and you know, over the weeks those conversations intensified and um there was a little bit more and a little bit more and then I think it was the 13th of April last year that you know, we finally came to came to a decision on on moving it. So, once you then make the trade, do you at that moment do you have your draft board so solidified that you know you want to try to get Conklin somehow? Yeah, yeah, we we knew we wanted to to get back up. Um, and you knew that if you stay at 13, you traded from 1 to 13, 15, 15. 1 to 15, sorry. You trade from 1 to 15, you're pretty sure Won't that be there. you're not going to get Jack Conklin Won't at 15. Be there. You think that you're positive or just pretty sure that he's going to be picked? I'm pretty positive that yeah. he will be gone. Right. And so then do you start to think to yourself, how high do I have to go to make sure I can get him? Yeah, yeah. You you've got to you've got to look at the teams ahead of you and, and see try to see uh, who who you anticipate. Again, you you have some you get information, but it, how concrete is that? Is that is that real or is that bluff? Uh, again, that's one of the fun things about the draft that you try to sift through. But we thought we had a pretty good bead that we were going to have to get in front of some teams in order to snag him because he was going to be gone. And that's why, you know, we found a willing partner there in Cleveland, fortunately for us, uh, that we were able to jump with and, and, and snag him. You know, it's interesting the philosophy that some teams have. You don't see – I mean, there's several teams that hardly ever move around in the draft. They just stay right where they are. Where do you think you learned your willingness to move around? Where do you think you learned – how to do that, or is it just something when you become a general manager, you just say, well, you know, if I have to make a trade, I'm going to make a trade. Coach Belichick. Yeah. 
Yeah. Watching him in the draft room, you know, see players, see players come off the board, position uh, himself and, and, you know, uh, well, we're getting close. Like, we got to go and and try to move up. Or you're staring at the board and you're like, we like this player, but I think we can slide down about six or seven spots and pick up another pick who – you know, maybe he's a core special teams player, a sixth rounder, or a seventh rounder, or something. So, you've kind of gotten the two for one, if you will, uh, by sliding down some spots, getting your guy, and then picking up another guy. So, again, just knowing the draft, knowing knowing the you know the supply of players, and and knowing potentially what other teams are targeting, and and just working it, and coming up with with something that puts yourself again gives you a competitive edge when you can work the draft like that. With John Robinson, general manager of the Tennessee Titans. John, this year, you know, for people who are sort of draft Knicks, draft watchers, you know, when I look at this draft, I see a draft that is very, very defensive rich. You know, the secondary looks good. There's some good linebackers, some very good edge rushers. So how do you characterize this draft versus others? You know, it, it, every every draft is is unique. It's it's there's different position groups that are heavy, uh, different position groups that are light. I would agree with you. I think this is a this is a heavy defensive draft. There's a lot of good football players on that side of the ball. Not to sell the offense short, I think that there's good running backs. I think there's you know some of these quarterbacks are they're they're going to gain steam here. They're they're good football players. There's wide receiver. There's depth in the draft, and if you do a good job of scouting, uh, you can find players uh, really in every round that can help your football team. You know, I thought we were fortunate enough last year. We find Tajay Sharp in the fifth round. We find Lashawn Sims in the fifth round. We traded back up for Lashawn. He had a pick in the Kansas City game that helped us win that game. He had a pass breakup in the Denver game that helped us win that game. Aaron Wallace had some quality reps. He was a seventh-round pick for us out of UCLA as a pass rusher and special teamer. Uh, so you can find guys if you if you do your due diligence, if your scouts do their homework, if they continue to, you know, review these prospects and see what they're going to add to the team. You can find depth uh, depth in the draft from you know really all the rounds. John, I I wonder when you look at sort of how far you believe you guys have to go to be a contending team. I've always said this sort of about, you know, different markets and different teams in the league. Even though you're in an area that is a massive college football area in the South, I've always thought that Nashville is going to be a team and and has been a team that really has embraced the Titans when they win. And that is really sort of ripe for a really good team and will be extremely enthusiastic if and when you win and win big. You're somebody who's very familiar with Tennessee and knows the area, grew up in the area. So what do you think of Nashville as a fan base and as a uh, as sort of an NFL market, now that you've got to see it up close and personal. Yeah, I, I mean, I th- I think our our fan base they're they're starving for us to be successful. Uh, when the team came there, uh, I think the very next year they went to the Super Bowl. So they there was a lot of energy in those early days uh, in the city. I had a lot of fans tell me that this time a year ago they were considering canceling their 
you know, their season tickets. They, they, they were just kind of done with it. But for some reason, they gave us a chance. And then they started to see what we were doing with trading for DeMarco, adding him to the football team, some of the free agent acquisitions we made, trading the number one overall pick, moving back up and taking those guys, drafting those guys in the second round, Derrick Henry and Austin Johnson and Kevin Dodd. I think their eyes were open a little bit that this isn't the you know the same old Titans that that we've known. This team is establishing an identity about what they're going to be, the style of football they're going to play. And you know they came out, they stayed to the end there uh, versus Green Bay. Saw us win that one. Stayed to the end versus Denver. Saw us win that one. And then you know what you know many said was a meaningless game versus Houston. There was a lot of two-tone blue in that stands when we walked off the field, and they knew that 2017 and beyond was going to be something pretty cool. We had 6,000 season ticket members at an event we had. I think last year we had 1,500. Our, our ticket sales are, are, going, are growing at a faster rate than they did a year ago. I think they believe in the process. I think they've seen us take a step and – with the draft currency uh, that we have and two first-round picks and two third-round picks. And from a financial standpoint, we're in a position we can make some moves. Good young players, good young quarterback, good offensive line, two, two stud running backs. You know, I think that they see what's on the horizon uh, there in Nashville, and they can't wait to watch it. John Robinson, pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the Titans. And uh, just from the standpoint of somebody who – travels around to all these places i really look forward to the day when nashville has got huge games late in the year just because i love coming to nashville yeah it's, you know, who doesn't great, love going to nashville it's an awesome city it really is couldn't be happier <laughs> have, to be hey, home have you been to the ryman auditorium uh i have driven by it i've been yeah. a little bit busy i hadn't had a chance to go there i went to the grand old opry last summer that was oh, that was a you? really cool experience yeah yeah i saw I don't know, a few years ago, I forget, but I was down there, and I went to see Loretta Lynn at the Ryman Auditorium. I mean, she sang like three songs, but one of them was Coal Miner's Daughter. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, that's sort of a, a memory. And you sit in that building, and you sort of say, man, can you imagine all the great performances that have been in here? It's like being in Yankee Stadium. It, it, it is, and this I would say same thing about the Grand Ole Opry. I, they have a yeah. – we, we got to go backstage, and on the stage they have a, a star in the middle where, you know, Elvis Presley and all these greats uh, stood yeah. up there and sang George Strait, all these guys. And, you know, I have two younger – and they don't know who those, you know, guys are. And yeah. I was like, do you know who stood here? Like, there are so many famous people that stood right there on that star. Just a really cool experience. Nashville's an awesome town. Mike and I, Coach Malarkey, we try to get out to the Predators games. A ton of great restaurants. You know, I, I took my wife downtown and I had dinner the other night. And it was pretty cool. I'm, I'm, we're walking back uh, to, the, to the car and uh, guys in the middle of the street – yells out the window tighten up love what you're doing you know that they're just juiced they're juiced to uh, to see kind of what we're going to do next year john robinson all the best to you and to the titans have a fun draft you're going to be a team to watch this year in the draft thanks so much appreciate having me on you're listening to the mmqb podcast my thanks to bill polian and john robinson some enlightening conversation before we go out couple of thoughts on the NFL owners meetings, which start on Sunday 
in Phoenix. You know, I've been outspoken in saying that I think that this offseason is setting up to be a net loss for the National Football League. I was not a big fan of the San Diego Chargers leaving San Diego and now being the Los Angeles Chargers. But the Chargers did leave. They will become the second team playing in Los Angeles. And as you know, if you follow sports, the road is littered with teams having terrible attendance and poor support in Los Angeles if they don't win. And the Rams and the Chargers combined to go 0-10 in their last five games apiece last season. So they've got a lot of work to do, both franchises do. And now to see that the Oakland Raiders are probably likely, that's how I would put it, to get the votes to move from Oakland, where they simply have been unable to get a new stadium built, to Las Vegas, where the local politicians have made it possible uh, to fund, from their standpoint, $750 million of stadium and infrastructure costs uh, that basically are rolling out the red carpet for the Raiders to move to Las Vegas. And I believe there's a very good chance they're going to get the votes to be able to move starting next week. So I just simply do not believe that a second team in Los Angeles and a team in limbo for the next two years and then playing in Las Vegas after that, that's not better for the NFL. It just simply isn't. The NFL without a team in Oakland in it, the NFL without a team in San Diego in it is a lesser league. Instead, we are going to watch the Chargers, I believe, struggle mightily for acceptance in Los Angeles. And I believe the Raiders are going to have some success and maybe overwhelming success in Las Vegas because this is a team that's going to be set up to be good for a long time. So I think that people are going to come out and support the team if, you know, a great young quarterback in Derek Carr and a good young defense led by Khalil Mack, uh, you know, if they continue to grow as players and as franchise leaders, that's going to be a really good team. So they'll get support. But part of me will always think that support belonged in Oakland. So before everybody just starts celebrating, wow, this is cool, finally the NFL in Vegas, what an incredible change for a, a league that for years and years fought and said, we will never be in Las Vegas. We'll never be in a gambling mecca. Uh, They're, I believe, going to roll out the red carpet uh, for the Raiders to go to Las Vegas. But I simply do not believe the National Football League is a better place when games are not being played in red-hot markets for the NFL, like Oakland and like San Diego. Thanks to my guests, Bill Polian and John Robinson. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King, that's me, on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning 
at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Blue Apron and Zip Recruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And one more note about the MMQB podcast with Peter King. We'll be putting out a special edition later this week with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell on the eve of the annual NFL meetings. So listen to that coming up this weekend on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. And I'll see you live from the NFL meetings next week.